Romans. Romans chapter 5. Christmas is also about realization. The realization of who God is. Holy, just, loving, merciful. And the realization of who we are. Desperate, sinful, and hopeless. And embracing both of those things. Believing both of those things. Who God is. Who we are. This is the source of actual hope in this world. We hope for so much. Our lives are practically characterized by hope. Think of how often you use or you hear the word hope. I hope that I don't get sick. I hope that um, this person likes me back. I hope that my marriage will work out. I hope that uh, I get that job. I hope I get that raise. Hope, 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 hope. And one of the reasons hoping things will go well uh, as part of our entire existence is because we lack control of so much. So all that we really have when it boils down to it is hope. Even if we do the things we think will bring about or achieve what we want at the end of the day, unless certain things go right, all we have is hope. And so we're forced into hope and we often get let down. And so unrealized hope also becomes a part of our lives. That's really our association with hope, is that most of the time it doesn't pan out. And eventually we stop hoping. We become extremely cynical and pessimistic. And Christmas, in a very unique way, as wonderful as it is, reminds us of this. We all know the feeling of decorating and the lead up to Christmas and how much fun it is and the beauty of the season and all the joy of it and all these things. But then it ends And real life comes again. January comes again, right, with its meetings and the budgets that didn't work out and all these types of things. And so Christmas serves to remind us that we will never have realized hope if we look horizontally or if we look internally. Christmas reminds us of this, that even when it's good, it ends. But we can't embrace true hope. Unless we admit our own hopelessness, right? unless we stop trying to make the world work for us, we're not going to have realized hope. We can't look up properly until we're lying flat on our backs. And it's from here that we see Jesus. Hope that will not disappoint us entered the world when God gave us the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, I ask for Your hand to rest on my mind and my mouth this morning. Please fill me with your spirit for these moments, for this text. Father, I pray that you would enable everyone to understand, to hear. So, Father, help me speak clearly. Help me speak the words of heaven here on earth. By your grace and by your power, I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for this. Amen. Let me read verses 1 through 11 of Romans to you. Paul makes such beautiful arguments, and sometimes it's best to just go ahead and hear them from start to finish. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, 
because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Those who believe in Jesus for their salvation have been justified by that faith. That is, they've been declared righteous before God by trusting in the person and the work of Jesus Christ for us. Jesus was delivered up to die by God to do two things for us. Forgive us of our sin by His blood, therefore removing our guilt, and rise from the dead so that by God's vindication of Him, He would also become our righteousness. The blood that washes me clean and the obedience that makes me righteous is in a person that stands for me forever before God the Father. Therefore, Paul says, that's the argument he's been making. Therefore, to embrace this Jesus as my Savior is to have peace with God. In verse 1. What if, what if peace with God is the key to all true hope? What if that's the thing that's missing in life? Peace with God. What if my life and what happens to me and the, and the direction I go cannot make any sense without Jesus Christ? Because in Christ, I have peace with God. What if my constant frustration and disappointment and the hopelessness that results from this doesn't stem from my circumstances? It actually doesn't come from my lot in life, but from the fact that because of my sinfulness and because I do not have faith in Jesus Christ, I've been cut off from my source. I've been cut off from the one who made me, the only one who truly knows me then. Literally better than I know myself. Who can therefore heal me and make me whole despite my circumstances. What Jesus lived, died, and rose again to accomplish for us is meant to ground you and I on something. To ground us on the rock that is Jesus Christ, for the rest of our lives, for our whole lives here, not just for eternal life. In Jesus Christ, God is no longer against us. Until I come to His feet then and surrender, I will constantly be swimming upstream against the current, no matter where I go or what I do or what I get or what I achieve, until I have peace with God I'm swimming against the current. And the best I can hope for then is to either make some breaks or hope that I catch some. When I die, then what? Right? Through faith in Jesus in verse 2, we are covered in grace, beloved. He gave us access to it by what He accomplished for us. Now we rejoice in hope 
of the glory of God. Now, rather than that being what threatens us and scares us, it is what I hope for and long for. The result of peace with God, you see it in the text, is hope. And this hope is not something that we've worked up inside. This is not human hope. It's not earthly hope. This is a gift. This is a result of God's grace. It's the result of something happening to us that someone else has given to us. Grace has changed our destiny. No wonder we adore Him at Christmas time and hopefully all of the time. And hear how amazing this is in the passage. Not only do we have hope for a guaranteed future that is fixed by God in the heavens and cannot be revoked, we are free to rejoice even now as we live our lives in this world. This hope is literally so real, it's transformational. That means it's solid and it's real. So when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about a positive feeling merely about the future. Again, the world can give that. We can produce that. This is something else. This is divine hope. This is hope that's a result of my future being so real and so sure and already obtained that it invades my present and it overshadows my past. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So Paul's argument would be, if suffering produces endurance, I can rejoice in it. Why is endurance so wonderful of a thing? Because that's the means God uses through which we obtain our hope. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You go from hope to hope in Christ. And hope does not put us to shame. Not the kind of hope God is talking about. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us in verse 5. So we not only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which we will one day literally live in forever, we rejoice, Paul says, in our sufferings. And beloved, listen, this is not arguing for a fake smile to be on our face all the time, denying reality, acting like it isn't real. You can be a Christian scientist if that's what you want to do. right? And this isn't that... Um, pasty white tooth grin of Joel Osteen and you can live your best life now John MacArthur said it so well the only way that this is your best life and you're living it now is if when you die you're going to hell that's the only way this life would be the best life you can live scripture doesn't call us nor does it even imply that, that what you do is put this big fake grin on your face and use positive thinking to deny the reality of suffering. A grin that magically gets bigger based on the size of your bank account and your assets and your holdings and all these things. That's all passing away. Why would our hope be in that? People that don't have that are hoping in that. Why would I want that? God is not unaware of our suffering, nor is He unaware of the pain the real legitimate pain that suffering causes and brings into our lives. He doesn't think life here would be grand and easy if we would just do the right things. Jesus Christ proved you can literally be perfect and the earth will kill you. 
That idea is a pipe dream. It's just a pipe dream in a fallen world. Verse 3 means that what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us is so perfect and sufficient and certain that even while I suffer here on earth, my rejoicing in the fact that I have a fixed hope remains sensible because my destiny remains unaffected by what causes me to suffer. That's the basis of rejoicing in suffering. It isn't permanent. To have peace with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ transforms my suffering into a window to see clearly rather than a door that shuts any hope out for me. That which causes me to suffer, that causes us to suffer, it's real and it hurts, but it has no bearing on our destiny, beloved. That is fixed because I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Notice this, the grounds for rejoicing and suffering is because of what it produces for those who have peace with God through Christ. For them, suffering doesn't take away hope. It produces the endurance that will lead me to its realization. Beloved, in the person of Jesus and His work for me, all in Him, all in what He has done, are the hope to make me persevere in suffering. To make me endure. So without suffering... If that's not there in my life. Now, again, we don't try to go in to suffering. That's not what the Bible is telling you to do. Try to go out and suffer. No, the reality is life in this world is suffering. If suffering wasn't a reality, we couldn't talk about hope. There's a reason people have hope because it's bad here. And I know it can be good and I know it can be beautiful. I understand that. I don't deny that. But the reality is for us, we're either in the valley, leaving it or walking into another one. That's the reality of life on earth if we're honest. So without suffering, if I don't have that, my hope will remain unrealized. And I won't have the spiritual lungs I need, the endurance I need to make it home. Is is it we try to avoid suffering so that our faith doesn't fail? And Jesus tells us through Paul, suffering produces endurance. Right? So what kind of Christian life is it to try to avoid As a spiritual principle, any suffering, meaning again, not trying to purposely walk into it, but believing that if I'm in Christ and I put God first in all of those phrases we use that we can't really quantify, then I won't suffer. If you don't suffer, how will we endure? It's not that Jesus Christ promises if you become a Christian, you won't suffer in this world. No, that's a lie. What he does promise is that even the suffering this world causes us, and we sometimes cause ourselves to endure, won't threaten the reason we have hope. But instead will be a means he uses to get us to the realization of it. Jesus takes us all the way home. So even the worst of things is a tool in God's hand for my sake. That is a reason for hope. Endurance over time with Jesus also produces in the text character. And it is character that also produces hope in verse 4. Now, does that undo everything Paul has argued and everything I've said so far? That the, is the Bible saying here that the basis of a Christian's hope is his or her character? 
My hope is based on results then. The more results I see, the more improved character I see, the more that I will hope. No, beloved, not if you don't break the chain of the text. Right? You've got to read it all together. This is a sustained argument. The basis of my hope is the reason for my rejoicing. That is the fixed and finished irrevocable, peacemaking work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. That's the source of my character, therefore remains the source of my hope. There's a means by which he causes me to arrive at hope, yes, but it's all driven by his finished work for me, because my character is not the result of my effort. My character is the result of the grace in which I stand, back in verse 2. That's, that's who he's talking to, when he talks about character, those who stand in grace and therefore have hope because of what Christ has done. All the means are grounded in Jesus. That's why in verse 5, we read that hope is something much more real than this mere positive feeling we can have inside. Again, human beings can naturally produce that kind of hope. That isn't what Jesus promises to us. He'd be redundant if that's all that he did. And superfluous. And Jesus is anything but superfluous. This hope is a hope that does not put us to shame, he says. That's the difference between this hope and the world's hope. Because we can hope for something so hard and then look dumb because we did and be shamed. Right? From little things to big things. The Bible isn't talking about a hope we work up from the inside. Don't hear that. Don't hear, don't, when you, when you read hope in Romans 5, don't think that feeling of positivity. No, 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 no. This is something way deeper, way different. It's talking about a hope that comes only from heaven, only from God in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ for us. Divine hope is the only hope that cannot will not be unrealized one day. That will not disappoint. There's no other hope like this. We will never hang our heads in shame because what we hoped for in Christ ended up not coming true. Why? Well, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit He has given to us. It's almost like if I know the promises of Scripture, I'll be okay. Right? Why won't this hope disappoint? Why won't it put us to shame one day for being fool enough to believe in it? Because this hope is the result of the fact that we're loved by God. So His Spirit just keeps pouring that love into my heart again and again and again. And at this point, if we're thinking like pure human beings, it's almost worrisome. Because what is love to us? If if I tell you I love you, deep down inside, we all know, now you do, right? We love each other now in this moment maybe, but what about the future? I hope you still love me 50 years from now, right? I hope that we'll still be together 20 years, all, all these kinds of things. Why? Because human love is fickle. So when we read that God loves us, it's it's... If we're not thinking according to the gospel when we read that, we just hear love again like we look, like we read hope, like a feeling. And feelings are, they come and go. They're, they're, you know, the level of intensity of a feeling rises and falls 
over time. If you're married, you know what this is like. When you're tied into a good fight, for better or worse, does not sound very good. Right? It just doesn't. No, my wife didn't do anything. That's not why I made him. <laughs> just you, you, you know what I mean, right? I mean, you, you, sometimes it's, you know, being in love is, is the most wonderful thing in the world. And then there are other times where it just, it's, it's hard. You know, it's hard to remain committed. I've really dug myself a hole on that. <laughs> it was just... Just meant to be an example, but my wife's married. We're not in any trouble. Everything's fine. Just, um, you, we know what I'm saying. I can move on. Here's the thing. The reason this hope won't put us to shame one day for being fool enough to believe in it is because this hope is the result of the fact that we're loved by God. All right, loved by God. So His Spirit keeps pouring that love into my heart. Think, get that image in your head for a minute. That just, that's, that's the, the metaphor God uses. The, the pouring love into my heart. It, it's a present tense verb. It's an ongoing action. Now, here's what I wanted to say. Alright? The Bible does not say that you will feel like the love is being poured into your heart again and again. And that's how you'll know when you have it. That's very important. See, the, the Bible doesn't do that. We, uh, the Bible doesn't promise that you and I will feel forgiven and justified and right with God. It doesn't promise us that we'll feel the Spirit pouring love into our hearts again and again and again, which means I literally cannot depend on myself for hope. I cannot depend on myself to know that what God says is true, I must believe by faith that it is true. It, it, listen, what God gives to us in Christ doesn't work like that. I wish it did. I really do. For myself, for you, that you'll feel this. There will be times, beloved, absolutely there can be times that God will bless us with an overwhelming feeling that He loves us and He's with us and that He's close to us. He does that in a thousand ways. A thousand ways and more all the time. But for the most part, we cannot base our hope on what we feel. We can't base our hope on what we feel. We base our hope 100% on what God says is true. That's it. Because then it has nothing to do with how I feel. Either it's true or this God is a liar. That's the source of our hope. And what the Bible is proving is that he doesn't lie. That's the point of all the stories. I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so help me, I will be with you. That has nothing to do with me. And it has nothing to do with how I feel. Nothing. That's what Jesus has bought for us. A hope not found within ourselves, 
but a hope that results from who He is and what He has done. And beloved, it is His love for us. Here's the thing about it. It's His love for us as we are in our sin and in our weaknesses that gives us the reason to trust in it. Remember, we stand in grace. Notice the rationale here. Notice where Paul takes this in verses 6 through 8. For, so here's the reason for all this, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how I know God loves me. Because he loved me when I was weak and when I was sinful. I think we have it in our heads that the better you become, the more God loves you. I think often our teaching, our preaching implies that, even if we don't say it. That your life, you know, you're, you're, you're winking that it's all by grace, but you're taking, you know, you're given with one hand, taken away with the other. Yes, you can have eternal life as long as you hold out. Right? Things like this. You know, perhaps if you were doing this, your life would be going better. And in some ways, that's always true. But again, the world could give that. If you made these decisions instead of these decisions, yes, your life would go better. Don't make God like a really great financial counselor. I mean, anybody can tell you that. And you can do that, right? Notice where Paul just... Jesus gives hope to the weak and to the sinful. If you're not bankrupt and a disaster... Jesus has nothing for you. If we're honest with ourselves, by the time we get to the end of verse 5, we're asking ourselves some questions. Is this really for me, though? I don't know that I'm enduring very well. I'm assailed and assaulted by doubt and fear and anxiety. I certainly can't look at my character to find evidence that my hope is justified because I don't know that I've improved enough to say that. I mean, I'm a little bit better I know the Bible says I've obtained grace through Jesus, but I don't really feel close to God all the time. I don't feel like my faith is very real. In reality, I feel weak in faith and I feel sinful. I don't feel good enough. I don't feel like I'm improving enough. My life isn't going well enough. Beloved, God knows that we are like this. God knows the ways we lie to ourselves and try to talk ourselves out of what he has said. We've been doing it since the garden. And here's the amazing thing about being a human being. When Adam and Eve sinned, neither one of them had a sin nature. They were just human beings. So what do I know? What do human beings do? They're going to disobey God. Because they aren't Him. They're not going to end up righteous. They're going to end up sinning. So if they sinned when they had no sin nature, and I'm conceived with one... I'm twice behind the eight ball. God knows the ways the enemy will use these things to talk us out of believing God's word. So he talks like this. Through Paul, he argues his point to us. Look at the words he uses in verse 
in these verses to describe what we are. Weak in verse 6, sinners in verse 8. In other words, to ground all these precious truths even deeper in grace, God reminds us ever so strategically at this point in the letter what the reason for his love is not. Right? I, in other words, I'm not writing this to the really good people of the world who've gotten their act together and are doing well. Right? Look at verse 8. God shows his love for us. In other words, the rationale being people are unlikely to die for a good person. Right? Let alone, you know, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8 are some of the most important verses in the whole Bible. How did God show his love for me? What did God do so that I would know rather than doubt that he loved me? He sent his son to die for me while I was weak and while I was still against him in my sin. Jesus didn't die for me because I promised to quit sinning. He didn't die for me looking to what I would become if he died for me. He didn't come to die for us after we got ourselves together and cleaned up. God didn't send his son once we'd proven we were worth the effort. By the time Jesus came, came, nothing was more clear than that we weren't. So none of God's love for me is based on what potential he sees in me. None of his love for me is based on my performance that I've shown to him. That's not when God first loved me. He shows me that he loves me by dying for me, not only when I was unworthy of it, that's a given, but while I was openly spitting in his face and too weak to obtain it for myself. In that state, God sent his son to die for me. So the scripture is saying it's highly unlikely that somebody would die for a good person. It's impossible to think that someone would die for a person openly spitting in their face, sinning against them, trying to kill them. So God shows his love for us like that, while we were like that, so that I would know whatever I struggle with after I know him, he's not abandoning me for. He already loved me when I was a mess. That's the basis for hope. That little baby lying in a manger will become Everything I need to have peace with God and be clean and be whole. He knew us, yet he loved us. Our weakness and sin do not keep us from him. No, it's, it's in that state, not an improved one, that Jesus died for me. He died for what I am, not what I could become. He loved me before I became anything. So his love for me isn't based on who I am. It's based on who he is. If I really blow it, if if we could bring the metaphor down to earth, if, if I really blew it, where would God look to withdraw love from a bank So that he had more to love me with. As though that would ever be needed. He would look to Christ. He wouldn't look to me. If God comes looking 
to us for reasons to love us. He's not going to find anything. This is the source of our hope. Do you understand? That's, that's the source of our hope. We're not meant to feel self-deprecating and suicidal when we hear that. We're meant to collapse and breathe an eternal sigh of relief. He'll carry the load. He'll give all the love, all the grace, all the forgiveness, all the righteousness. What in the world would a person stay away for? He's telling us here and now that we, to, to belong to Jesus, that is to have the blood of Jesus covering our sins, the righteousness of Jesus covering all our disobedience, means that while we were dead set against Him, God already loved us. So they're in... There's no way he'll abandon us or his promises to us when he loved us before he gave us faith. While we were weak and sinful, he isn't going to stop loving us for being what we are when he started loving us. That's why we have hope. The gracious, unmerited, unearnable love of God for us in Jesus Christ. Christ. It's because God already loved me that Jesus died for me. Right? It's, it's not that the death of Jesus made me lovable. God and His Son aren't at odds like this. The cross is the demonstration of how He loves us. That's how John actually says it. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's because God desired that I would return to Him as His dearly beloved child that God sent His Son to die for me. He saw what I was and sent his son. God then raised him from the dead for me. So not only would my sin be washed away and my account brought to even, but then it would be filled with the righteousness required to stand before him. So 9 through 11, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I thought I was saved by Jesus' death. Yes, because his death was the end of his life, which was perfectly obedient. We talked about that last week. We need Jesus living as much as we need Jesus dying and rising from the dead. If not, he just comes down and hops on the cross. What's he doing as a baby in a manger? What is the point of this? We need an obedient human being to live for us. All of this is the basis of our hope. Here Paul is basically in 9 through 11 just explaining, summarizing what he said in the previous verses. Paul is giving Christians the reason for their hope. He's waxing eloquently here about just what justification really does for us. What is it really to have peace with God? To be made righteous, to be forgiven. Well, we'll be saved from His coming wrath, for one thing. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Part of God's glory is going to be wrapped up in how He brings history to a close. But in Christ, there's no need to fear it, but anticipate it. Not because we want those things to happen to people that reject Him. We don't. And if we do, we need to go back to the foot of the cross and remember who we are. Right? What Jesus did for us was to make us stand until eternity. 
He's preserving us all the way through, even through the coming revelation of God's glory in wrath. When Jesus returns in power and glory to be marveled at by his saints and to judge the wicked and the unbelieving. God loves you. He isn't going to destroy you, Christian. And he isn't going to lie to you. He's going to keep loving you and save you and give you a reason to rejoice forever. Justification doesn't make my salvation possible or even probable in verse 9. Do you see that? It makes it, and I quote, much more, unquote, certain. You see that what I hope in is what Jesus did for me, not what I'll be able to work up on my own. That's the ground of endurance and the source of my character, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. God has done everything then to pull the eyes of our hearts off of us, off of the world, and fix them on him. Listen to Paul's gospel reasoning again here in verses 10 and 11. Look at that. He explains peace with God as reconciliation with God. So, peace with God is not merely a declaration, a forensic legal declaration that's on a piece of paper somewhere in an office. That if anybody had to look up and see, oh, technically there's, there's peace between these. No, this is also reconciliation. It's peace then that isn't a standoff between me and God. That's a kind of peace. We're just not shooting at each other today. Have you seen those pictures of World War II and they're heartbreaking when the German and British soldiers or German and Russian soldiers, I think, stopped fighting on Christmas Day and sat down and ate together. And then the next day they started killing each other again. You see what Paul is doing? You say, listen, it's, it's not like that. It's not an unsteady peace. It's, it's not like let's lay down our weapons today, but we all know what's really coming. That's precisely his argument. No, this is reconciliation with God. We're not shooting at each other tomorrow either. We never will again. This is a peace that brings us close because it's grounded in love. That's so important, believer, unbeliever to hear. God doesn't have this need to balance the books that sent his son. Love sent his son. God's, nobody's counting anymore. It's finished. Run to Jesus. It's finished. It's finished. Some of us are carrying around guilt for things that Christ will wash away. And look, it's very hard when others won't forgive you for the wrong that you've done and so you carry shame for it. I get it. Trust me. I get it. But he doesn't. He doesn't. How of all people does God not hold a grudge? That's how good Jesus is. That's how perfect God the Father is. Why is verse 9 true? How can I rest in what it tells me and not doubt? Because in verses 10 through 11, Paul reasons that if God reconciled us while we were still enemies, if he reconciled us and brought us close while we were sinners and rebels against him, then he isn't going to back out on his promise to save us because we still struggle and falter here. He already loved me while I was a sinner. Sinners are who God loves. 
Believers, and I don't say that so as a believer now, you know, we're, we're going out there and trying to sin because God loves sinners. That, no, we are sinners. We sin. We just also now, because of Christ, happen to be saints at the same time. But I still have this flesh. I still have this human nature. But according to Christ, it's been crucified. It's no longer actively damaging my standing before God. And rather than threaten us with the fact that we're still sinful and weak, the Holy Spirit reiterates and deepens the extent of God's love for us all the time. Pouring it into us. Pouring it into us. Pouring it into us. That's happening. It's happening right now. It's happening when I'm obeying. It's happening when I'm sinning. It's irrespective of those things. And again, that's not telling us, so go out and sin. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Sin always matters. It's simply being honest about who we are and who we aren't. Because then whatever hope we have is fake and fragile. If we're trusting in who we are and what we've done as the basis of God's love for us. If by his death Jesus reconciled sinners to God, then we can be sure that by his life, since God raised him from the dead, he'll bring wayward children home to God. And in verse 11 we find that all of it was written for our rejoicing. This was all written for our rejoicing, not our fear, not our worry, not our guilt, right? For our rejoicing. Rejoicing in hope of the glory of God in verse 2. Rejoicing even in our sufferings in verses 3 and 4 since they produce endurance and character rather than snatch us from God's hand. And finally here in 11, rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has done this reconciling, peace-giving work for us. When God gave me the faith to believe in His Son, and as a result of that gracious gift, I confessed my sins and repented and asked Him to be my Savior, I was then and there, from this end, reconciled to God based on what Jesus did for me. And where Jesus Christ is the reconciler, there is never again any chance of separation or conflict. In this we rejoice And in this we hope, beloved. What texts like this reveal is that God is as loving as He is holy. God doesn't wink at sin. That's that's not what grace is. It's not God pretending it doesn't exist. It's God addressing it without obliterating us for it. And because God is holy, He hates sin. He burns in holy anger against it and sinners. But because he's also bountifully loving in his essence, his anger with sin didn't cause him to annihilate us. It did cause him somehow to send his son to redeem us and rescue us. The death of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to reconcile us to God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to give us peace with God. By making us perfectly righteous. Hope that will not disappoint us. Enter the world when God gave the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Come and adore him. The giver of all hope. Adore him. Believe in him. And have peace with God.
that no one can take away and that will never disappoint us or put us to shame.